Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Seventeen people were killed, including eight children, when one of New York City's deadliest fires occurred in a Bronx high-rise apartment on the morning of January 9, 2022. Prior to this terrible tragedy, the Leadership Under Fire team planned to spend this month on the podcast revisiting two historic and deadly New York City fires that left a grave mark on the city and forever changed the FDNY. The LUF team wishes peace to those souls who perished in the recent blaze and comfort to their loved ones. We commend the brave members of the FDNY who answered the call to save those in peril. The Bronx tragedy is a stark reminder that firefighting today remains a dangerous and principally human endeavor, just as it has for centuries. Twenty twenty two marks the one hundred and tenth anniversary of the Equitable Building Fire in New York City. On January ninth, nineteen twelve, the Equitable Life Assurance Building, located in Manhattan's financial district, caught fire after a match was carelessly thrown into a trash can. Within minutes, almost the entire building was engulfed in fire. Outside, the wind was howling at nearly forty miles per hour with gusts up to almost 70 miles per hour, making the already below freezing temperatures even colder. At the time, no other private business building housed a similar magnitude of monetary interests under its roof. Considered by some as the world's first skyscraper, the building at 120 Broadway was completed in 1870. The tragic deaths and enormous property losses sustained at this disaster contributed to lasting changes to FDNY policies and procedures. Those familiar with this fire may know the logistics of this historic event, but in this episode of the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast, we aim to add to the historical narrative of the equitable building fire through a human performance lens. This conversation is made possible by the extensive research efforts of our guest in this episode, FDNY Lieutenant Matt Connor. Matt was appointed to the New York City Fire Department in 2005. He worked as a firefighter in Engine Company 222 and Ladder Company 124, both in Brooklyn. He was promoted to lieutenant in 2020 and assigned to Battalion 37 in the 15th Division, again in the borough of Brooklyn. He's served in the FDNY Bureau of Training and contributes to the FDNY's Mental Performance Initiative. Matt received a bachelor's from the University of Delaware and is pursuing a master's at the Graduate Center City University of New York, where he is studying New York City history through the lens of urban firefighting. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. So Matt, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so looking forward to talking to you today about another historic fire. Hi, Patty. How are you? Thank you for having me back. So I really enjoyed episode number 56, which we dedicated to the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. 
And I want to urge listeners to go back and tune into that episode if they haven't already done so. I already gave a high-level overview of the equitable life assurance building in the intro, but Matt, do you mind explaining some of the finer details of this prominent building in New York City? Sure. I think if we look at um, the equitable building in terms of uh, the neighborhood in which it's situated, we have to remember that it is the really the epicenter of the financial district uh, in Lower Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And if we look at Lower Manhattan now, uh, it was obviously less of a, a vertical uh, landscape, although mm-hmm. that was changing at the time of this fire. So the original building was uh, constructed in 1870 and was considered uh, by some the first true skyscraper at a height of about 10 stories. You know, th- this had changed by the time of this fire. Now we have buildings surrounding this building that are up, upwards uh, of 40 stories. Mm-hmm. So this is a continuation of the theme that we discussed in our last conversation about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, where the um, the utilization of structural steel and the advances in elevator technology facilitated a skyward development in Low Manhattan. In terms of the finance industry, people think of uh, the term Wall Street, and this particular building wasn't situated on Wall Street itself, but just blocks away. And it, it was v- very much the epicenter of... Um, of finance in that area. This predates what we know it now as the Federal Reserve Building, which is just a couple of blocks away. And um, it's worth noting that in the equitable trust building, there was actually uh, holdings of up to $6 billion in, in the money of the day. You know, uh, there were a series of vaults mm-hmm. and safes that were on the premises there. So we're just, uh, this building was um, situated at the the hub of financial activity in Lower Manhattan. Wow, thanks for painting a picture of the neighborhood and the assets that were stored in this building. Obviously, this was a very prominent neighborhood in New York at the time, and all of the above, everything that you mentioned, influenced human behavior and added pressure at this fire. Additionally, there was a veritable blizzard in New York City on the morning of January 12th, 1912, can you describe the weather conditions that day? And this will come up more as we discuss fireground operations. Sure, Patty. Uh, like you said, this was a variable blizzard. Um, there was already a significant amount of snowfall on the ground at the time of the fire. The fire was basically um, started um, at about 5 a.m. Um, at the time, there was 37-mile-per-hour winds, uh, snowfall uh, accumulating, and those weather conditions would deteriorate through the course of the fire. So there was a, during the course of the fire, as it progressed, we had an average of uh, wind speeds of up to 55 miles per hour and, um, and sustained gusts even higher at 65 to 68 miles per hour. The temperatures ranged when the fire started the, uh, to about 35 degrees and dropped through the course of the fire down below 20 degrees Fahrenheit uh, into the teens. So this was a really challenging, very cold morning uh, that really impeded uh, operations in several ways. Matt, as an operator, what comes to mind or what perspective do you have about cold weather operations and even considering the differences between PPE that you wear now versus what they had back then? So, Patty, one of the challenges with that type of weather uh, in terms of uh, from an operator's perspective was the extreme cold and wind just in terms of uh, personal protective equipment or clothing alone, this pre- uh, provoked a challenge to the firefighters that responded. At the time, uh, the, the protective equipment is nothing like we wear today. It was as simple as uh, you know, organic materials uh, like cotton 
clothes and um, and heavy wool coats. The Industrial Revolution was affecting the available materials, and uh, there were in some places in the country that were starting to manufacture rubber turnout coats that would be worn over those organic materials. Um, it's unclear if any of that was available to the firefighters of the day. It, it's unlikely, based on uh, some of the pictures that we have, the photographic evidence. Um, more, more than likely, some of the turnout gear was uh, potentially uh, leather overcoats over those wool-heavy coats uh, that were worn underneath. And sort of the industrialized um, synthetics that were that became part of our personal protective equipment ensemble were likely added to the um, the department later on. You mentioned the photos. I would highly recommend that listeners Google photos of this fire because they're incredible when you see all of the ice on the building and you know the the weather conditions on the day of this this fire. It it speaks volumes. Absolutely, Patty. I, I, I felt the same way as I, as I sort of consulted that photographic evidence. I tried to wrap my head around the conditions um, these firefighters were facing. And, you know, especially given the, the limited protection provided by the equipment that they were wearing uh, in terms of clothing, um, I was trying to, you know, they had the additional um, challenge of also during the operation becoming soaked, soaking wet. Um, and having to sustain these high wind, high wind gusts um, over the course of several hours and dropping temperatures down into the you know, freezing temperatures. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really hard to imagine in, in the conversation with some of the team, we were trying to sort of situate the physiological challenge and the psychological challenge of, of these temperatures given the, the equipment available at the time. And some of the, um, you know, in conversation, some of the uh, comparisons were you know, possibly that this could have been as extreme as, um, you know, things that explorers of uh, the Arctic might have experienced in terms of, uh, you know, being soaking wet as they, you know, uh, were operating in these extreme cold temperatures. So it's really not just the uh, the severity of the fire itself and some of the things that happened at that fire. It was really just the, the conditions itself were so severe and mm-hmm. so sustained that um, this is really a big part of the equitable fire story. Right. So now that we've set the stage, my understanding is it was determined that an employee of the Cafe Savarine distractedly threw a still lit match into the garbage, which was the cause of this fatal catastrophe. So what do we know about the start of the blaze? Yes, Patty. So that is documented that the start of the blaze um, was sometime around 5 a.m. when one of the workers of the Cafe Savarine uh, had shown up. Um, lit a match um, to light a gas lamp in the timekeeper's office. And at some point within about 20 minutes, another worker observed a fire in that office um, that was already fairly well advanced within the confines of the office. So that's um, just to put that in perspective, um, this is also a parallel with the, the last fire that I spoke to you about, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which was ultimately killed 146 people. Um, was also started by a carelessly discarded uh, cigar or cigarette. And some of the statistics we have available of the day, just to put this in perspective, um, in 1911, there were 13,868 fires, the number one cause of which were discarded matches. And there were 1,366 cases that were documented, discarded matches starting those fires. Another 1,000 were attributed to cigarettes, and another 400 were attributed to uh, unattended candles. 
So unattended open flame then as now is a major cause of accidental fires. You know, you can tell just by those statistics that it's a high level of fire duty. And, and when we consider the size of um, the city at the time, um, it, it puts it in perspective the amount of, um, the amount of work uh, the fire department was doing at the time. Is there anything else you want to add about the start of this fire before we get into the FDNY's response and operations? Yes, actually, one aspect of the start of the fire that affected the severity of the fire was that it was there was a slight delay in in reporting the fire, and this is because when the fire was initially discovered and had probably been burning for several minutes uh, unnoticed. There was an initial effort to extinguish the fire by the employees of the cafe who had discovered it. There was a standpipe system in the building, and uh, as part of that system, there was a 100-foot lead length of hose attached to that standpipe. And there was an initial effort to extinguish the fire um, by the employees uh, at the time, which um, then delayed the notification of the fire department. The notification of the fire department was actually the action of a, a patrolman, an NYPD patrolman, who, uh, observing the conditions there, pulled the alarm box, uh, box 24, and alerted the fire department at that time. So there was about a 20-minute uh, delay in uh, notification to the fire department that there was a fire ongoing at the uh, Equitable Building. Matt, so ultimately this went to a fifth alarm assignment. Can you give us some context for what that means and why it was so significant? Absolutely, Patty. So I'll just give you a quick timeline, which we've already sort of started going into, just so you have some context for the the overall operation um, until the final extinguishment. So like we said, the fire, we believe, started around 5 a.m. And the alarm was transmitted at 5.34 a.m., at Box 24 at the corner of Nassau and Pine Streets. The second alarm was transmitted slightly delayed at 5.55, and I'll get into why I say it's slightly delayed in a second. The third alarm was transmitted at 6.01 a.m., the fourth at 6.03. A special call for a water tower was made at 6.07, and at 6.27, there was an order by telephone to start the high-pressure pumping system, which I'll get into. At 6.28, it escalated to a fifth alarm. At 7.48, uh, there was a the first ever what we call a borough call, meaning companies from Brooklyn were summoned over to assist the companies in Manhattan. This is significant as a, it's known as the first ever instance of this since the consolidation of the Brooklyn Fire Department and the Metropolitan Fire Department in 1898 into the Fire Department of the City of New York, which is FDMY as we know it now. The NYPD actually stopped all other traffic over the Brooklyn Bridge to allow nine engine companies, four ladder companies, a deputy chief, four battalion chiefs, a wa- and a water tower access to the bridge, exclusive access to that bridge, to bring additional equipment to the scene of the equitable fire. The fifth alarm companies eventually brought the fire under control at 9.30 in the morning, and um, all fire was extinguished at that point. Just to put this all in perspective, um, through the tr- alarm transmissions leading up to that fifth alarm and the borough call included, there were a total of 31 engine companies and 10 ladder companies operating at this fire. Uh, the alarm transmissions wouldn't necessarily equate to the types of units that would respond in today's terminology, but the transmission of that fifth alarm goes to show you the, the widespread need for resources to tackle this extended, extensive fire and ver- in a very complex vertical environment. So we took some time at the start of the episode to talk about the building 
but we didn't go over the building construction. So do you mind explaining that right now and how that influenced the progression of this fire? Sure, Patty. The equitable building, uh, you have to understand, this was actually a composite building of interconnected separate buildings, if that makes sense. So the original equitable building was 120 Broadway, and then that building um, was expanded to eventually encompass the entire block bordered by Broadway to the west, Cedar Street to the north, Nassau Street to the east, and Pine Street to the south. So this is just north of Wall Street, if people are familiar with that, just to the east of Trinity Church. And eventually, the building took up that entire block, and that's what the building looked like at the time of this fire. Because that the building wasn't originally constructed as one building, that created some conditions where the fire was able to spread uh, in, in a way that became significant, eventually leading to a series of collapses. But let me just backtrack a little bit to that timeline where we talked about the delayed transmission of the second alarm. Mm. So initially, the fire was attacked via the an aggressive interior attack, which we talked about in the context of fire department history when, we, when I came to speak about the Triangle Fire. Um, in a similar vein, the fire in the basement of the equitable building was attacked via an exterior entrance and a hose line was advanced down down the stairs to the relatively small area where the fire had started. By the time companies, engine company got there, the fire had extended to the adjacent room, but that company was able to extinguish that fire successfully with that aggressive interior attack. What happened was the rooms that where the fire had originated were adjoining uh, some vertical channels where that fire was able to spread rapidly and vertically through the building, mainly by the elevator shafts and also through a series of dumbwaiters. To understand why that was the case, it might be worth looking at some of the occupancies that uh, that actually were in the building. So, Patty, in addition to the Cafe Severine, which we already mentioned, the Equitable Building was also home to other prestigious uh, social restaurants such as the Lawyers Club, very prominent social scene where the, the financiers of, of the day in Lower Manhattan would gather in this building routinely. And there were also some very significant commercial occupancies within the building that we'll just talk about briefly, but we'll give you some context for how the building was sort of set up for its daily operations. So the first floor and the basement were largely occupied by uh, as we mentioned before, safes and vaults for this, um, the extensive holdings of these financial companies, including the uh, Mercantile Safe Deposit Company's vaults, also the Equitable Trust Company, and the Equitable Life Assurance Society. Uh, another notable tenant of the building was the Union Pacific Railroad. So the Union Pacific Railroad uh, was uh, basically uh, the company that involved in the, the construction of the first transcontinental railroad. So th these were some prominent tenants in the building, and they would, you know, socialize in these vast restaurants such as the Lawyers Club and the Cafe Severine. Th those commercial occupancies of the restaurants actually had a lot to do with how the building was set up. Um, there was a, a large kitchen on the eighth floor. The Cafe Severine occupied the basement and ground floor, and the Lawyers Club had a large section of the fifth and sixth floors. So within the building, there were these vertical channels, which eventually led to fire extension within the building um, after the initial knockdown of the fire in the basement. Um, like I mentioned before, the, the elevator shaft was one of those vertical channels that was involved heavily. Um, the equitable building is actually notable not only for being considered by some the first American skyscraper, uh, it was also the, uh, the, 
the site of the first publicly accessible elevators in the city. Not the first elevator, uh, but uh, the first elevators that the, pub the general public might have access to. So you can imagine that this was sort of a, uh, a very, you know, very prominent in the uh, cultural imagination of the New Yorkers of the day. Um, but because of these social obligations in terms of the restaurants, there needed to be an efficient system to, to transport food and, and goods within the building. So in addition to this, uh, this notable elevator system, there were also a series of dumbwaiters, which are basically small uh, pulley-type systems within a building that could move food for the restaurant or goods within those occupancies vertically through a channel in the building. What happened was the fire actually uh, exposed these vertical channels, and it became essentially a flue. So there was rapid fire extension through the elevator shaft and through these dumbwaiter shafts that extended vertically through the building, eventually exposing the top floor of the building and uh, creating an extensive fire condition at the, the top floor and exposing the roof. And I, I mention this not only because we have to understand how the fire developed, but also in similar fashion to the Ash Building with the Triangle Fire, um, these buildings were being publicly touted as fireproof, which is a little bit of a, a confusing term and a little bit misleading. So even though the, things like the exterior walls were composed of masonry, you know, non-combustible material, there, was, uh, there were aspects of the building that were very flammable and also aspects of the building that facilitated fire spread such as these vertical vertical voids is what we'd call them. Basically, another, you know, I mentioned the top floor. The fire was sort of undiscovered uh, initially at the top floor because of the, you know, discovered fire at, at the lower levels. So the initial attention was given to that lower level fire in the basement, and there was a delay in discovering that vertical extension. This is why I mentioned the second one being slightly delayed. Um, once it was identified, it was addressed through that progression of alarms to, to tackle this rapidly expanding fire dynamic in the building. So this was obviously a very busy building, lots of things going on inside, and there were six casualties at this fire, including a line of duty death. So can you describe the life hazard? Sure, Patty. Let's, um, let's begin by focusing on three of the fatalities who were actually cafe workers. Um, and this is directly related to my discussion of the fire progression and vertical extension. So what happened uh, when the fire was progressing in the basement, um, three of the cafe workers had tried to escape the, the area, and because of their exit was cut off to the, you know, the, the stairs that they had traveled down to their work area, they resorted to using the elevator as, a, as an effort to escape the basement. They, the workers ended up, for reasons unknown to us, uh, they, they tried to escape to most likely to the roof area. They ended up uh, on the top floor um, trying to get out onto the roof, and they, they accessed that area via the elevator because they had no access to that staircase. Um, this was the beginning of a dramatic uh, rescue attempt. Um, unfortunately, it ended in there, uh, the fatalities of all three workers. But those three workers ended up showing up at the roof level, and there was, a, there was an effort to reach those those workers uh, in a scene reminiscent of what we talked about last time with the Triangle Fire. There were, you know, an obvious life hazard on as units were arriving based on the, the alarm box being pulled. And there was a an effort to reach these workers that were trapped high above the, the initial fire condition in what we now, you know, we consider a skyscraper of the day. So this is directly related to the challenge we talked about last time we met 
about the danger of being, people being trapped above the fire in these types of buildings. The three workers were identified early on, but obviously there, was a, there were challenges in terms of how, how to reach them. There was actually only one interior stairwell to this building. Even though the building was so vast at this point, it's hard to imagine, but there was actually only one accessible stairwell in the building. And um, due to the, con the fire condition and the smoke condition in the building, um, there were efforts initially to reach those crap workers from the exterior. There was actually an effort launched from one of the adjoining buildings to use what's called a, a Lyle gun, which is basically a rifle with um, a spool of rope attached to the projectile. It was a safety line that was shot over to their position um, for them to be able to uh, try to traverse to the point of uh, the rescue operation. So if you can imagine what this looked like, this is a rope being shot across from one, one skyscraper of the day to, to another as a lifeline to these trap workers. Very daunting conditions. Uh, the first lifeline that was extended to them actually burned through from fire that had now advanced to the point where it was exposing those upper floors and burned through the rope. Um, as the second rope was um, deployed, uh, unfortunately, one worker fell to his death and, the, and I believe the other two then decided to jump to their deaths. The, the position they were in became untenable. Um, simultaneous efforts included the use of uh, scaling ladders. We discussed scaling ladders briefly in the discussion of the Triangle Fire, but basically, for those who didn't listen to that episode, scaling ladders are a portable ladder that's extended from below a fire area out a window, and then it has a hook on the end of it, and that's hooked onto the window ledge above it, and a, a firefighter would then you know, climb on that very narrow ladder outside uh, the structure to access that, that area from below. Um, obviously, this would only be used if there was um, if there was no other way to get to that that area. So these were workers that were trapped by a fire condition that there was no other way to access them, and this was uh, another means that was uh, attempted. There was actually a firefighter recognized for his um, his valor by attempting that rescue. You know, later that year, um, even though the attempt was unsuccessful. So it goes to show you how how dangerous that maneuver is. Um, that it was still recognized as an act of bravery, even though there was a, a loss of life in that case. Um, the, the Lyle gun and the scaling ladders, um, just so we understand the life hazard, the, at the onset we had visible life hazard presenting as the companies were arriving on scene. So Patty, in addition to the, the trap members from the cafe who were, you know, those valiant attempts to rescue them on the, the top floor and roof, roof line of the building, there was also another very important uh, notable rescue that was made during the early stages of the fire. So we talked before about how the fire conditions had influenced human behavior. So one of the things, one of the lessons here is that the life hazard can, is a fluid thing that can change during the course of an operation. So even though the initial life hazard were, the, were those workers who tried to escape the basement, there was another aspect to that in the sense that one, when the fire was um, discovered by you know, others in the city, um, there was a notification made to the president of the Mercantile Deposit Company, Mr. William Giblin. You know, we mentioned before, you know, the, the vast amounts of securities and, and stocks and, and um, finances that were stored in this building in these vast safes and uh, vaults. So when he was notified of the, the fire, Mr. Giblin literally dashed down from about uh, 30 blocks away from Midtown with his assistant. And they went to retrieve uh, important documents from the company's offices in, in the building while it was on fire. So uh, in addition to the known life hazards, when the fire department showed up, we had this addition of uh, these two men who 
took it upon themselves to uh, to try to secure these documents that were of such importance that they put themselves in, in harm's way. And that's something that happens at fires um, that you know operators need to be aware of that that life hazard is is fluid to an extent. And uh, unfortunately, what happened with these two men is that while they were they were trying to access these documents in the basement, there was a heavy safe that now the fire's progressing. So there was a heavy safe from the first floor that fell. That safe falling, this was like a small collapse that precursor was a precursor to larger collapses to follow. That um, because of that collapse, there was fire spread um, into the basement area after the initial fire had been knocked down. And these two men became trapped in the basement. Um, eventually, they found their way to a window because their their exit had been cut off. And they were showing up at a basement window that was secured by iron bars, which you can imagine um, this was a you know secured building because of all the financial holdings within it, especially at the first floor and basement level. So uh, one of the most important things about this operation was this attempt to rescue these men. There was a, a gentleman named Seneca Lark. He was Native American, and he was also formerly an iron worker before he joined the fire department. And he volunteered to address this life hazard under very harsh conditions, which we already discussed. We, you know, we talked about the weather conditions and the freezing weather. And it puts this equitable fire in the context of um, the fire department's uh, available technologies and capabilities in the sense that at the time, there, there were no advanced tools for cutting available. So Fireman Lark had a hacksaw and was able to saw through these bars to reach these two trapped men, you know, with fire impinging on their area of refuge and also uh, enduring these harsh uh, wind conditions and freezing temperatures. And at this point, the strain of being of operating under these conditions and uh, at this point, exterior hose lines being operated. So there was a lot of commotion going on and, and Fireman Lark was actually awarded the highest honors well, later that year, the Gordon Bennett Medal for this daring rescue, and really the tenacity involved in it because you know he was using his his past background and his skill and understanding the tools at hand and and their ability to overcome an obstacle under extreme duress, but it was a, a successful rescue of these two men who you know who ended up in this building after after the fire had started. Mm-hmm. Patty, in addition to the life hazard that was identified in the basement of the equitable building, there were additional reports that were evolving during this fire that was rapidly extending vertically. Um, reports of workers that were in the building overnight and were possibly sleeping in the vicinity of the fourth floor. Upon the transmission of the borough call, which brought units in from Brooklyn, now Chief of Department Chief John Kenlin, who had replaced Chief Edward Croker, who was the Chief of Department, if you remember, during the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. He's now on scene at this point uh, at the report of these people trapped, and he's taking over control of the fire from the exterior in terms of uh, you know leading the deployment of resources. And at this point, there's a deputy chief, Bins, who volunteers to climb to the fourth floor via uh, an aerial ladder. And there were 14 other volunteers at this point that wanted to follow him and and search for this um, these trapped people. Among Chief Bin's volunteers was Chief William Walsh. These uh, these members ascended during, like we said, these cha- very challenging uh, conditions, including these these extreme wind gusts and uh, extreme temperatures, climbed 
an aerial ladder into the fourth floor of the equitable building in search of these reported trap victims. What happened next led to, unfortunately, the, the final three fatalities at the, the equitable fire, including the line of duty death of Battalion Chief and the 2nd Battalion, Chief William Walsh. As the members entered the you know now uh, harsh conditions uh, of the interior of the building, which included uh, heavy smoke condition and um, and vertically extending fire, the the search was conducted, and upon uh, not finding any uh, victims on the fourth floor, that search party was now descending the interior stairs um, down to the third floor to continue their search for those trap worker reported trap workers. At this point, uh, there was a, a massive collapse that occurred, which was actually one of three separate collapses in different areas of the building that occurred over the course of the fire. But this one was the most significant in that it was the largest collapse. And uh, as I mentioned, it, it resulted in the fatalities of um, two workers, John Campion and Frank Jane Needler, and also you know, the line of duty death, unfortunately, of Battalion Chief William Walsh. So those workers were found uh, underneath the rubble um, well after the fire was put out, and Chief Walsh wasn't wasn't located until four days after the fire. His um, unfortunately his remains were found frozen underneath um, rubble that included the roof. Another important point to note in the collapse that uh, ends up taking these three lives is that in addition to the weight of the flooring, um, what precipitated the collapse downward uh, was most likely. The roof construction, and you know, when we talk about fireproof construction, one of the things that's a little confusing is, um, you know, people assume that the materials are necessarily safer under fire conditions. What the term really means is that those materials themselves are not combustible, but some of the roof material, tile, and and also steel, you know, there's weight involved in those, and when the supports that hold those structures up, when those come down, that creates. Um, you know, complication in terms of how the building can be susceptible to collapse. So this is somewhat ironic because um, in the case of this quote-unquote fireproof equitable building, fireproof materials that were used for the roof and the flooring ended up really contributing to the, the, the deadliness of, uh, of the fire in terms of uh, its collapse potential. Okay. So we've covered the interior operations so far. What was happening with exterior operations? So, Patty, once the once this catastrophic collapse occurs, uh, which took those three lives, uh, at this point, uh, under Chief Kenlin's leadership, all of the interior operations, the search and rescue, and the extinguishment from the interior, those things are transitioned to the exterior of the building. I'll make a couple of quick points here in terms of, um, it's really in terms of high-rise firefighting. So, mm -hmm. uh, one aspect of this has to do with the water supply, which we, again, some of this stuff does tie in very closely um, with the, you know, the time period of the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire the year before and some of the available technology at that time. So one of the really interesting aspects to this, uh, especially with regard to the exterior operations, is the use of the high-pressure pumping system. Mm -hmm. For those that didn't, uh, that aren't familiar and, and possibly haven't listened to the other, um, our other conversation, the high-pressure system was a series of separate hydrants that were constructed, uh, separate water mains with separate hydrants that were specifically uh, utilized to support high-rise firefighting. So these hydrants had um, the capability of providing uh, approximately 125 to 150 PSI uh, pounds per square inch of, of water pressure at the hydrant. So engine companies could connect these hydrants directly to standpipe systems to provide adequate 
uh, volume of water at adequate pressures to you know pressurize that water and get a firefighting hose line in place at upper floors of these buildings. So this system was in place at the time of the Equitable Fire as well. And uh, one of the challenges that happened at that fire was that the nearest high-pressure hydrant was more than 800 feet away from the initial fire area. As the fire uh, attack transitioned from an interior operation to an exterior operation, there was more of an opportunity to utilize the high-pressure system. Um, and it was used in two ways I'll, I'll discuss briefly. So one important way that this was used was it was used to supply the standpipe systems of adjoining buildings um, from which exterior hose lines could be directed from those exterior from those buildings across the street from the equitable building. Because of the high winds involved, the hose lines from you know the the steam pumpers that were horse-drawn steam pumpers that were brought in front of the building, they were ineffective from the street level. The the way that this was overcome or augmented was that hose lines were used from adjoining structures that had standpipe systems and then you know, the distance at which the hose lines needed to be operated were, were, were cut down. So they were operated at the same height from the adjoining building to put water on the fire from the exterior. Another really interesting way the high-pressure system was used was in the instance of two particular hydrants on Nassau Street, the high-pressure system was actually used to divert water from that system and was connected directly into the hydrants from the parallel system uh, of hydrants and water was pumped as high as 250 PSI into this, this parallel hydrant system. So this might be a little confusing to, to some, but if you can basically picture two, two pipes on, in the street that were essentially running side by side, the high-pressure system obviously had higher-pressure water in it, and the, the municipal water supply was um, you know, used for fi things like firefighting and also household water and things like that. So the purpose of the high-pressure system was to ensure the availability of water at all times for the purposes of firefighting in these uh, large commercial districts. So this was uh, lower Manhattan and also in areas of downtown Brooklyn. But that, that diversion of water from the high-pressure system into the other system of fire hydrants was the first time that I, I've seen that discuss. So I thought that that was very notable about this fire, that, that that level of innovation was employed by by the engine companies on on the scene. Mm -hmm. And this is something that has relevance uh, even today at large commercial fires uh, in New York City. One of the issues that comes up is that the, the volume of water is being depleted at such a rate that the pressure in the system drops and the Department of Environmental Protection actually dispatches workers to monitor water pressure at operations like that. This has historical roots going back to the Equitable Fire, where uh, those water pressures could be remotely augmented to ensure a proper supply of water for large advanced operations such as this. Obviously, this is a historic event because of the tragic loss of life and the challenges that members faced. But Matt, from an operator's point of view, can you humanize the Herculean efforts that were displayed at this fire? I think I can, Patty. And I think since we're here on the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast, it's appropriate to take a look at the leadership at this fire and kind of situate it in the events of the day. The New York Times, in the aftermath of this fire, wrote of the leadership of Fire Chief Kenlin, who had, as I mentioned before, um, taken command of this fire. They wrote that at 9 o'clock, Fire Chief Kenlin, who worked like a Trojan at this, his first great fire, was actually weighted down with icicles. They had formed on his eyebrows and hung from his mustache like dumbbells. From his shoulders and arms, 
The men in the lines had to chop away the coat of ice. He looked like a man from another world. I, I think if we take a step back and look at the conditions under which the firefighters were operating at this very challenging, rapidly expanding, and catastrophic fire that eventually took six lives, including one of their own, I think that imagery that that Chief Kenlin exhibits is worth is really worth taking a moment to think about. And I think in terms of leadership, what comes to my mind as an operator is that the level of commitment to which we assign to our mission will really come out on display during some of the most extreme circumstances that we could experience, um, just as, it, as they did during the equitable fire. And it's worth noting that Chief Kenlin was uh, taking over in a leadership role um, really in an important way. He, was, he came up through the civil service system, which um, provided equal opportunity to those who uh, aspire to leadership within the fire service and through city you know, service more generally. You know, he had replaced the esteemed Chief Edward Croker, who was the leader of the fire department um, during the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, which we had mentioned several times. Um, I'd like to also, um, just to give you a sense of this, this kind of leadership, I'd also kind of like to share uh, a quote by Chief Croker, who, which is well known within the FDMY, but perhaps is not as familiar to some of uh, the audience. So Chief Croker was uh, a product of the, the Tammany system, really a political appointee. And uh, while he was well-respected, well he was a 15-year veteran of the fire department who had made two notable rescues on the scaling ladder, which we had discussed earlier, you know, the severity of that type of rescue. Um, but uh, we'll just take his words and, and think about those as well. His famous quote is, I have no ambition in this world but one, and that is to be a fireman. Our proudest endeavor is to save the lives of people, the work of God himself. Under the impulse of such thoughts, the nobility of the occupation thrills us and stimulates us to the deeds of daring, even at the supreme sacrifice. So I, I think if you take those, those two leaders and think about you know, the, um, the, the level of commitment and the regard with which they held their work, I think that's where I as an operator, where I look to them um, for inspiration. And um, the equitable fire is a, a dramatic example of... Uh, you know, people being committed, in this case, the fire department's mission to preserving both property and most importantly, life. And you can see from the actions of the day and the, the way with which those technologies were distributed at the fire and utilized, and also the grit with which operators, you know, brought to the table um, for these dramatic rescue attempts, some successful, some not, people really committing themselves to that mission in their action. I think that's what I take away from this uh, in terms of, uh, you know, looking at the events of the day and the conditions of the day and then trying to draw some leadership lessons from that. Thank you for sharing that. So obviously in the fire service, tragic events such as this play a pivotal role in future training and operations. And when we discussed the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, we covered how it spurred the creation of the Bureau of Fire Prevention and a series of laws and regulations that better protected the safety of workers. So what were the lessons learned and implemented at the Equitable Building Fire? One lesson learned would be um, an administrative lesson, we'll call it. And the other one would be an operational lesson. And uh, by administrative, I mean, just as uh, fire code was really the you know, and safety regulations were really the 
the uh, the hallmark of the aftermath, the Triangle Fire, the Equitable Fire did something important. So the Triangle Fire of the year before influenced what was considered um, an innovation in safety for factory conditions, really improved workplace regulations for that type of commercial occupancy. The Equitable Fire was important. It really expanded the, the realm of the uh, safety and commercial occupancies from not just factory conditions, but also commercial buildings such as the Equitable Building, which is really an office building. And as we know, Manhattan became the epicenter of the development of these types of office uh, buildings and economies. So, you know, one of the issues that came up with this fire uh, was the dramatic rapid vertical fire spread. So the New York Board of Fire Underwriters issued a report that sort of detailed these administrative shifts uh, as they apply to commercial occupancies like one of the major issues was the the floor openings. So, un, you know, the lack of fire stopping between floors uh, in commercial occupancy such as this. And also the construction, you know, the, there were recommendations that the height of fireproof buildings should be limited by the adequacy of fire protections. So meaning um, adequate supply of water at standpipe outlets, the, um, the fire pumps to augment those things. So things like fire stops and fire doors were also um, emphasized in occupancy such as these, not just in factories. Um, you know, the emphasis on sprinklers. So the, you know, the need for sprinklers in, in, um, in these kinds of buildings was, was important. And we also mentioned before the stairways. There was only one interior stairwell in this building, uh, su- which is surprising looking back on it, but that's only because of the modern eye for what these buildings would look like to us normally. But that was also the result of this kind, uh, this the historic fire, uh, in that you know stairways were needed for egress, and also exterior um, stairways that protected, you know, like fire towers that protected people when they were trying to escape fires, um, as ultimate means. That was also something that would be incorporated into the building codes. And there was a special emphasis in that report focused on restaurants and their their uh, situation within buildings like this. So there was a need that was identified for inspections and, you know, regulations on the square footage of those kinds of occupancies and also the need for ventilation hoods and, and, uh, and flues for kitchen services that would uh, prevent the, the vertical spread of fire or the fire getting out of control within, the, within those large open areas. So there were a lot of administrative aspects to this fire in terms of lessons learned that were applied really in tandem with the lessons learned of the Triangle Fire. You know, we talked a little bit about the the shift in leadership um, from Chief Croker to Chief Kenlin. And one of the things that's really notable about this fire and important to talk about is um, just as uh, Chief Croker is identified as having no other ambition than being a fireman, he had, ironically, he had uh, ended up being slightly more ambitious later in life in terms of uh, shifting his mission to fire prevention uh, in, in the private sector and creating a company that serviced um, that mission, uh, company still exists today. In terms of Chief Kenlin, I think it's important to to notice that there was a dialectic within the fire department um, that shifted things back towards, as we always do, towards tactical proficiency, um, technological advancement, and you know a tactical skill level that will address life hazards. And in in the case of Chief Kenlin, this culminated in his effort and support of formulating what's now known as a uh, rescue company. In this case, uh, the formulation of Rescue Company 1 in Manhattan. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. And um, the establishment of Rescue 1 is very much tied to this time period. 
but also to this fire itself in some ways. So, Patty, after the equitable fire transpires and the fire department is looking at this in terms of lessons learned, Chief John Kenlin is of the mindset that there are some capability deficiencies in terms of um, available equipment that um, need to be addressed within the fire service. And, you know, one of the issues was the ability of the fire service to operate under um, extreme conditions in, ter- in terms of uh, the ability to breathe. And, sort, for example, cellars and subcellars in, in Manhattan and also in hazardous materials environments such as ammonia storage facilities. And also uh, there's a, a deficit in terms of some of the available cutting technologies, as we, as we saw with the example of Seneca Lark's rescue in the basement at the Equitable Fire, that was enacted through um, sheer will and um, adeptness at using that hacksaw to get through those bars. But there was a, a recognition institutionally that we needed to provide better uh, availability of cutting technologies such as acetylene torches and have those capability and built into the apparatus and firefighter skill set that was deployed at fires like that. This effort was actually spearheaded by a civilian um, who was tasked with doing some research in Europe um, about available technology. So um, he was essentially a delegate of Chief Kenlin. The man's name was Robert H. Mainzer, and he was actually a stockbroker, a successful stockbroker. And we talked before about the the ties of this this fire with the finance industry. Interestingly enough, uh, one of the developments out of this fire is this you know effort to sort of staff and arm this new newly formed rescue company, Rescue Company One. And what Robert Mainzer does is he he does a survey essentially of available technologies that are incorporated into the arsenal that's assembled to uh, you know to create this new this newly formed company. One of the firefighters who operated at the Equitable Fire becomes a charter member of Rescue Company One. Uh, he was no- noted as um, participating in that effort to reach those cafe workers on the top floor via scaling ladder. So there are a lot of ties here to the Equitable Fire in terms of exemplifying the need for further technology and resources uh, within the fire department. So one of the other interesting details about the Equitable Fire is um, there, like we mentioned before, there was actually an attempt to deploy what was known as the Lyle Gun. Um, that projectile rope system, you know, shot out towards uh, the trapped workers. That uh, that Lyle gun actually becomes a symbol of uh, Rescue One, which was formulated in the aftermath of the Equitable Fire in 1915. So there are a lot of interesting connections between the institutional knowledge that went into the formulation of the rescue companies and also some of the tactical operations that occurred at the Equitable Fire that inform, if not influence, the creation of that company. Got it. Matt, the Equitable Fire resulted, obviously, in considerable property damage, and six lives were lost, one of those being that of an FDNY member. So does this tragic loss of life contribute to the historical legacy and importance of the Equitable Fire in any way? I think it does, Patty. And I think the fire is notable in that the loss of life, you know, encompassing both civilian and uniform and a uniform member, is, is notable, um, especially in that the loss of uh, uniform life was um, in the service of mission, which we talked about. The supreme sacrifice and deeds of daring that Croker talks about in that, in that um, often repeated quote about him, and also 
you know, the shift in terms of leadership towards, you know, that, that drive for a tactical excellence that Kenlin exemplifies with his support of formulating Rescue One in the aftermath, I think, you know, those aspects make this fire very uh, prominent in FDNY history and in some ways overlooked because uh, this time period interests me to a great deal because there's so much going on and there's so much transition going on at the same time. But it's, I think it's really worth um, looking back on and kind of trying to see where, where those influences lie. And when we talk about supreme sacrifice and sort of honoring that sacrifice, something comes to mind in terms of uh, our tradition, in terms of ceremony. So mm -hmm. um, for those not familiar with the FDNY, we, we actually have our own Memorial Day uh, that honors you know, uniform members who have passed away in, in the past year. We do this every year, every October, and we honor those who have passed away in the line of duty and also those that have, um, those active duty members who have, have passed away for other reasons. And I think it ties in with the public sentiment at the time of both the Triangle Fire, which we talked about in our last conversation, and the Equitable Fire, which we talked about today. And um, the, the sentiment is one that is really a, an elevation of the firefighting profession to the level uh, that's, I think, commensurate with Chief Croker's vision. Um, and there was a public recognition and appreciation for the fire service in New York City that I think probably remained uh, unparalleled um, until roughly a century later. Uh, but when I say this, I mean that there was another notable fire of this era on, mm -hmm. um, that took the life of Chief Kruger. Chief Croker was actually um, present at this fire, and this was a fire, another commercial fire, where the chief was, uh, there was a, a collapse and he fell into a, uh, a basement that had been become inundated with water that was, you know, accumulating through the course of the fire. He drowned in this basement. And uh, during the remarks at his funeral, there was a, uh, an effort that came out of the, um, his eulogy that there should be some sort of way to, to, to mark the, the sacrifice that these uh, firefighters were making on behalf of their fellow New Yorkers. And the, the result of this was the Fireman's Monument, which is uh, in Riverside Park uh, in northern Manhattan uh, on West 100th Street along the Hudson River. And that's the gathering point for uh, September 11th. There's a, a ceremony there in commemoration of uh, the events of that day. And every year on Memorial Day, that's a gathering place. And it's it's really a place that was uh, that came out of this, this civic appreciation. It was actually funded. The monument itself was funded through public subscription, and advertised in uh, in the newspapers of the day. And this is all happening at the, in the same time period that we're talking about. So the drive for funding this monument, this public sculpture, followed Chief Kruger's death in 1908, and uh, parallels Chief Kruger's leadership of the fire department. And uh, it was actually constructed in 1912 under Chief Kenlin's uh, administration, and it was dedicated in 1913. And, you know, there's also a, an effort to commemorate service, uh, the fire department to, to the people of New York. It's an effort to make that commemoration a, a timeless recognition, um, something that will stand for future contemplation in the years to come. And that's, that's still very much part of our ceremonial culture in the FDMY. Mm -hmm. And if anyone in the audience is ever visiting New York City, it's worth, uh, it's worth a look. It's really a, a built commemoration of this sort of spirit of the day that we're talking about during you know, this time period. 
Absolutely. It's a beautiful memorial. Matt, I want to thank you for sharing your extensive research in this episode and highlighting another historic fire. My last question is, what do you learn by looking at history with an emphasis on human factors? I kind of alluded to it before in that I think when we look at the leadership during this period, we see that our highest ideals in terms of our commitment to our mission, when challenged by extreme circumstances such as the uh, were faced on the day of the equitable fire, the, uh, the purity to that mission will, will show in our actions. And um, one of your previous guests, uh, just to bring it back to like a, a personal operator level, things that you know you might think about personally, and you know think about why these things matter to you. One of your past guests, Jonathan Fader, you know talks about remembering your why, and I think that's relevant when we look at not only the tactical excellence that was displayed at this fire, um, and also the the resilient institutional resilience in incorporating some of the challenges that were faced that day in in terms of progress uh, within the fire department. I think if we remember our commitment to our mission and keep that at the center of our routines, as, as has been discussed on this podcast before, um, we'll, we'll have a better opportunity to exemplify that commitment when conditions really challenge us, just as was done during the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, just as was done during the Equitable fire under the most severe conditions. If we keep those things at the center of our work, I think we can uh, have a better chance of, of really stepping up to the, uh, the challenges of the day, whatever they may be and wherever, wherever we may operate in whatever field. That's great. Thank you so much for being with me today and for sharing everything. I so appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Patty. I really appreciate the opportunity. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit Leadership